Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Comics Fondle Podcast 2016 Recapped The Best, The Worst. I'm Andrew. My blog is comicsfondle.com. And I'm Vernon. I'm the proud proprietor of the Comics Gallery, a fine retail establishment on the North Shore of Chicago. And uh, this is our podcast, and I think we're actually a little bit closer than Around our regular. the mark a little bit, aren't we? Yeah. 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 And so we're, we're covering everything that happened in 2016. It's uh, We're recording this Friday, January 6th, and not a lot's come out in 2017, so we're we're pretty caught up. Indeed. And, and it wasn't a really meaty year for 2016. I remember like preparing the uh, list for 2015 last year, and it was a matter of slicing a few things. It was. And uh, that, that really wasn't necessary this year. It's not like me and Andrew are going on overload or anything like that, but um, perhaps there was just less great books to talk about this year. That could be it, I'm willing to bet. But still plenty to read, you know, no problems there. But uh, yeah. anyway, we go through our categories every year, and our first is the ending series of 2016, which is kind of handling the tail ends of stuff that's uh, finished up or whatever. And uh we mentioned the uh, end of BPRD, that wonderful Hellboy spinoff series from Dark Horse that managed to run, if I remember correctly, 176 issues, which has to be a modern-day record for continuous run of a comic book, you know, or at least pretty close to it. Um, BPRD often outdid its mainstream counterparts, especially since it was a team-oriented book with a lot of individuals with different powers. And... Uh, it was just fun to read, very unpredictable, lots of death, the end of the world, the Armageddon, big giant monsters. It was all there. So we'll miss it, but it uh, finished up its run really good in uh, 2016. Um, one more we're going to go to. Uh, how about that Eltingville fan club of Evan Dorkins? Yes. Um, so now Eltingville, when was the first issue of Eltingville Club? Uh, it, was- uh, God, it was at least a couple years prior to issue two, I'm thinking. Let's see if we can find it real quick. But, yeah, so Eltingville Club finished up uh, after coming back with a uh, one issue back in, oh, no, was it actually in 2016? It couldn't have been. That was way no, too No, that would late. be the second one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hold one. on. Let's see here. Yeah. Um, it, it was a two-issue miniseries, and uh, they were um, separate books. They weren't like – they were continued yet not. Right. Um, I'm going to say actually – so what we've got here is uh, these are a couple years old, and they released the hardcover of everything this year. Oh, so. okay, okay. Well, it's nice to have all that stuff under one cover because it was uh, incredibly biting satire of the God. What would you call it? Convention-oriented business of comic books, role-playing games, <laughs> video, everything. You know, and uh, merciless fandom. It, it, he sort of took fa- he skewered fandom. Oh, by the balls. I mean, those guys that are the Eltingville fan club are hopeless human wrecks of misery, I think, compared to the real thing, to be honest with you. But that's the point. Um, we had another one that finished up three volumes of uh, Kieran Gillen and uh, Jamie McKelvey's uh, phonogram. Now, while it was a very narrowed uh, type of book dealing primarily with uh, pop music, uh, the stories, the three main stories that took place over the three volumes were very artfully constructed and gave kind of cool personalities about this group of people who understand music as power and were kind of like witches that could draw 
upon the magical power of rock and roll and how they do it and the different places and stuff. Now, if you're uh, intended towards these kind of books, it worked out pretty good. I mean, if you're a superhero guy, if you like pop music, you know, these all worked out. But uh, I'll I'll always like this series better than I liked, uh, was it Wicked and Divine? This is the big one yeah. they're known for nowadays, which I just, I tried to penetrate and I just couldn't, maybe later. And um, I guess see, uh, Tokyo Ghost, did you get to look at that one? I mean, no. uh, Sean Murphy one? It's, it's, yeah, it's Rick also Remender a Rick Remender book, Vernon. Right, yeah, that, that, that doesn't always work well. Uh, Rick, Rick's good, oh, maybe half the time, I guess. Uh, I like him when he's doing Marvel or DC stuff or Marvel stuff because he's pretty disciplined there. But uh, it was so nice to see Sean Murphy get on a project that was worthy of his chops finally because we seen the, we see him, saw him meander from book to book. And he had some success with Grant Morrison's one uh, about the autistic kid, I think it was. Oh, yeah. And that was fine, but it didn't have a lot of meat on its bones. And it's not to say Tokyo Ghost has a lot more meat, but there's just so much more going on. And uh, it was a well-rounded artfully constructed story and uh, in 10 issues and it was reprinted in the two trades. Good science fiction and absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous drawings by Sean Murphy. Ugh. All right. So uh, now we're failures, getting... I'm sorry. What was that? I was going to introduce for you since you have to talk no. about the first two books. Oh, that's right. Those are mine. So we're going to talk about, uh, so now, <clears throat> excuse me, everybody. Uh, we're going to talk about the failures of 2006. I'm not sure we've ever talked about failures split out before, but, you know. Hey, the losers, the worst. There's some losers on here we should talk about. Um, we're going to start with the legacy of Luther Strode, which I didn't even read. Well, it's, it's Justin Jordan, so I can forgive you, because he's uh, established himself as someone who really doesn't have, like, much writing chops and I'm not cutting, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to get personal or anything, but I just, I've read a couple of Jordan's things and they're just not very well done. And they're very Spartan. Is that the right word? It kind of reminds Bars, me of what's far well, you know, like Steve Niles, what he put into a script. It, it's very similar, you know? Yeah. And, and he managed, of course, well, this is probably due to the very laborious art of Trad Moore, which took forever, but he managed to like keep this thing going for what, six issues per volume and three volumes and. Basically, by the time I get to the end, the only thing I was interested in is looking at Tradmore's drawings because the story <laughs> itself and the characters were pretty nebulous, you know. Uh, another one that was the intense failure of 2016, which which I'm sure I've mentioned before, is poor Eric Stevenson, our man over at Image, tried to get uh, Nowhere Man going up again. And he teamed up with a pretty good artist, Dave Taylor, who did the narrative and uh, imitated the style of the previous artist really well, yet keeping his own dynamics in there. But again, schedules, it never came out. It never comes out. And I'm like, well, how do you read a comic that doesn't come out? That's a serious problem. And Nowhere Men just kind of uh, bounced back on the problems of its premise series earlier. And that was a big failure for me because I really wanted to continue reading it. And now I'm kind of tired and I don't really give a shit anymore. Huh. Now, is Nowhere Men the Fantastic Four one or the X-Men one? Uh, that would be the Fantastic Four one. Okay. The oldest concept, yes. All right, so next up, uh, wow, all right, here we have to talk about it again. Ryan Freire. No, Prophet Earth War, man. Oh, Prophet Earth War, yes, I'm sorry, yes. Oh, Well, you have to sum it up. Why was it a failure of the year? What? <laughs> Expectations, obviously, are big. 
So, well, the expectations were big, but the other thing is the last Prophet series ended as quite a bit of a failure, and we were sort of hoping they'd pull it together for Earth War, and they didn't. And we talked about this on a previous episode, I think. Uh, It's just, it's, I can't think of any other series that ended so disappointingly. Yeah, Earth War managed to be slightly better than the chapter preceding it, Mm. but not much. And, and and it wasn't like we were going to take away points from Brandon Graham for coming up with what you might call a definitive end of the story because I don't know if that's his bag. He seems right. to like to go on tangents. And we're perfectly willing to go along on tangents even for the last ride, but Prophet Earth War just ran out of gas. That's all it was. I to don't think it ever like, had any to start. Well, I yeah. Mean, it just, by the time they got that far, yeah. Yeah, the book has, I mean, just in general, Prophet sort of – it never – it seemed like its popularity died out, and when its popularity died out, so did them being able to bring on whatever artists they wanted and that sort of thing. And it just got a lot less creative. And Earth War, yeah. I don't know what they thought they were going to do in between to sort of build up excitement or whatever, but they didn't. And Earth War did not pay off. No, it didn't have any of the uh, the redeeming facets that we were willing to forgive the earlier run. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of kind of a Xerox copy with a little more dilution to it. You know, very sad, disappointing, and uh, yeah. it just part of the general breakdown of the Brandon Graham idol worship that goes on in certain areas of comics, probably to this day. Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly didn't prove uh, prove us wrong after looking at his eight house and all that stuff. But anyway, no, not at all. Now we'll talk about Ryan, Ryan Ferrer. Yeah, give me some Ryan Ferrer love. <laughs> I wish I could. Uh, we'll, we'll start out with Kennel Block Blues because I don't think I read Hot Damn. Hot Damn was the one in hell. Yeah, that yeah. was that was, the, that was the latest one there, next to it, and yeah. But Kendall Block Blues an interesting book, and he always teams up with like really good artists, yep. which is really unusual. And then it just Kendall Block Blues just failed. I mean, and we wanted it to succeed. That's the thing about some of these Boom books. Um, Boom had a really good couple of years the last couple of years, and so we've been more the more excited about their stuff than not. And it's like when we. We give them that credit, and then it doesn't work out, and you know we're back to not taking Boom seriously anymore. They still publish a couple of good books. I'm thinking if they did that one, I'm into Slam, but we'll talk about that later. Um, Ryan Ferrer, he was like one of those guys. Now he self-published on Amazon's label, their digital thing. I think all of his stuff is maybe previously published online. I know that the Dave stuff is. I know the Hot Damn was. I don't know about Kennel Block Blues. He really needs that editor syndrome where someone could sit there and take all these ideas that are processing through his head mm-hmm. and, and help him shape it into a coherent whole that makes for a good story. Because, you know, Kettle Block Blues was perfectly fine until the very end. And it was like, God, that, it was such a misstep at the end. You're like, Ugh. and I like Dave. I think it's funny satire, but it really doesn't have any big endings. And Hot Damn was very similar. It was like um, a sitcom that doesn't really add up to anything at the end of the show. You don't get a punchline, you know, something that ties it all together, you know. Well, that was one of our failures. Now, Ryan, you get to work. Get yourself an editor. I'll read your next book. 
But uh, another one was, what was it, uh, Circuit Breaker by Kyle Baker. Remember that one? No, because it didn't come out. Isn't it coming out in a couple weeks? I couldn't tell you. I, I see it on the FOC list here and there, but it never comes out. But we only got like three issues of that, right? Two. I don't know, two. Two. And Kyle Baker is like a really watched talent. Now, I don't know what happened to this book. No one's come out with a reason why or anything, but... I had to give up on it just because it didn't come out, you know, and it was a very dark book for him, you know, and I wonder if that just didn't reflect his personality about life in general or something that he didn't finish the series. I don't know. Empress is all you. I I don't read Mark Miller books unless you force me. Yes, well, as a retailer, I have to read Mark Miller books. It's just I have to do it. And, you know, something Empress with the addition of Stuart Immelman on the artwork was actually readable, fast-paced, and very, dare we say it, Buck Rogers-like in its uh, in its presence. And then, then again, it comes to a big, fat, steaming, lit pile of turds at the end when someone doesn't know how to end something in the right manner. And you read, I don't know, this thing at this point, I don't know, would have run seven shoes. They had the big issue at the end, four ninety nine for for 40-something pages. And I was like, oh, man, this is like the worst, lamest, most, if, 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 what would the most mellow, NBC, if NBC did a Mark Millar show, this is what they would do, because it was so lame with the ending. And I don't know, Stuart Emmerman, great artist, hope he got paid. But again, this was a, this is this was a steaming ball of turd at the end. I was on board until the end. Oh, should I let you talk about Nick Spencer? Do you have anything nice to say about Nick Spencer? I have at absolutely all nothing nice to say about Nick Spencer. Nick Spencer's in the news again this week for being a whiny little douchebag, white man. What, what's what's Nick whining about today? What's unfair <sighs> to Nick? Uh, let's see. I think he wrote a scene where Sam Wilson apologizes to Steve Rogers for being a militant black man. Oh, uh, boy. Um, and then the villains are the social justice warriors. They're, they're like, uh, I don't want to, I, I haven't read about it. I don't want to talk about it. Let's just say Nick <laughs> Spencer, Nick Spencer voted Trump. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he's been, he's, he's been a really, a, a, a semi-popular writer. He had some luck with, uh, that Spider-Man villain book about a year plus ago, Untold Stories of Spider-Man Villains. I don't know. Most notable for Morning Glories, which is possibly the most unreadable comic made to mankind. Um, he was doing all right with Fix. For some reason, early on, the first three issues, he's got some pace, some humor about these uh, stupid bad cops, and he keeps it up. But it's pretty obvious uh, by the – I think the fifth issue came out recently. Maybe it was the sixth. I'm not sure. He's running out of gas because there's these long, inter, interminable pauses in the thing. And he was working on this fast-paced joke thing, which was working really good. And then it just started dragging out. He's got these scenes that don't go anywhere, and they're not funny, and they're they're marginally interesting. And I'm like, is he running out of ideas already? I, I don't know. And Lieber's art uh, on the latest, latest issue was kind of mailed into. I'm normally a fan of Steve Lieber, but it was really the weakest of the bunch, so – I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I felt like I was going to give Mick, Nick Spencer a chance, but now he failed. So he's one of our failures of 2016. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> uh, you don't even read the books that he's famous for, for sucking on, you know? It's like... Anyway, uh, Strange Fruit, uh, Mark Wade, J.G. Jones. I, I know they had an issue. Did they have another one? 
you know, it finally finished in the year 2016. It took them over a year or about a year to get four issues done. And they all J.G. Jones. Oh, you know again, I, again, this was all about the ending. Again, um, big, uh, not much new uh, taken from American historically. The, was it the Nat Turner type character? You know, he's, he's actually, he stole this one, was it? This is straight out of what John Carpenter's brother from another planet. John Sales, but yeah. Yeah, John Sales, right. If John Carpenter had made Brother from Another Planet, it'd be Strange Fruit. There we go. Oh, very good. Good analogy there, yeah. But again, this one craps out in the end. Got some beautiful J.G. Jones, like, uh, paintings, obviously wrought from photographs, digitally altered, look great, good scenes, yada, yada. But again, it falls on its ass, and it just kind of dies. And I was like, God, all this work. And I just wasn't impressed with the ending, so... I don't know. It was just a failure. I'm sorry. Four issues. We waited a year and it failed. I'm sorry. And, I don't want uh, to give some work a failure, but I didn't have a choice. Huh? <laughs> you feel bad, you know, because you worked his ass off and like, oh, God, this is so dull as shit, man. I'm sorry. You'll note the only people that Vernon's had any sympathy for have been J.G. Jones and Stuart Immerman, and they're the artists on this. And Trad Moore. Yes. Everybody Trad else, Moore. you know. Vernon well, just throws him down with the. Yeah, I'm I'm not a I'm a, I'm a big writer guy as you have you taught are, me. No, and it's just it it is that you feel like the artist gets it's unfortunate a script the script is and we hear a lot about how you know they're putting the colorists on the covers and you know the, oh, yeah, the writer driven comic yeah, yeah. And the th- the truth is, is that the reason that that's important is because you could say that in the 90s, the big two lost the ability to churn out passable material. Yeah, and the art the got art, worse. Yeah. Like, let's be honest about it. The art got worse. The DC yeah. and Marvel reaction to the ima- the creation of Image is, you know. Yeah, we don't have to try. Let's we just get it out. So, it's just the artists, you feel bad for them. Because Stuart Inman could have been doing something else that could have been good. J.G. Jones should have been doing something else that was good. Steve Lieber, you know, Trad Moore needs to get away from uh, what's-his-face, you know? Like, they, I'm sure they're friends, but Trad, you know, it's not the right guy. It's not the right fit. Jordan Scripps alone. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of... um, mainstream speaking of art speaking of comic books vernon's gonna tell us why he thinks dark knight 3 is a failure oh oh it's it's kind of like um a dickety golden book for batman because it has so little content and much pretty pretty pictures that the story is simple uh the dialogue is simple there's no complexity I'm sorry, Frank Miller, if you're not doing well or dying or whatever's happening to you. It's very painful to read your comics these days. And it's painful for DC to produce comics like this, especially when they cost five ninety nine, and they don't even make five minutes of bathroom reading. And I don't know. And they're just the little insert comics. A couple of them were okay. This one was just trite as hell. And, uh, and then they fill it out with, like, black and white reproductions of the drawings that are in the story. And I'm like, you don't have much story. You should just, like, do some more pages of the story, you know? <laughs> uh, 
So we get like black and white reproductions of the artwork that's in there, which just looks stupid in his filler on the latest issue that just came out. And they've announced that it's going to nine in the latest previews catalog. First, of, first it was seven, then it was going to eight. Now it's going to go to nine. And I'm thinking DC wants to keep publishing Frank Miller until he can't produce comics anymore. It seems like that's the case. And that's why I call that a failure because if it was three ninety nine, fine, four ninety nine, it would hurt. But at five ninety nine, they're definitely it's like the Eagles and concert tickets. They're just taking you for a ride. That's all there is to it. So those were our biggest failures of twenty sixteen, my God. Yes. That's a pretty bad one, man. That's, that's and a now bad We need to talk about things we like. Yes, all right. Trade paperback mentions. Trade paperback mentions. Now, I see in, I see. we have, starting out, we're going to talk about some Garth Ennis. But I need to ask you, have you had a chance to read Johnny Red yet? I have not. I'm sitting there and I'm looking at it, but I can't. I have not had the chance with the holidays. They've just been too crazy. You love that book, didn't I you? I love that book. Uh, you said the ending was good, too. That, that, I think it was really good, too, fun. and we know that Ed is sometimes... He can sketch on that. He can right. sketch on his ending. You know, like, what is it? That one, he, the World War II one he did for DC. He got away with that ending, but he he didn't end that book. He just knew that he could, he just knew he could do yes. it. Well, um, and, and he still holds true to his uh, values about writing lots of war stories. He's still writing what he wants. I mean, uh Sounds like a good winning thing to me. He may not make much money, and he may not have a huge audience, but sometimes that's what it's about, you know. I mean, he takes it seriously. Uh, War Stories were finally 20 issues in, uh, probably, what, 14 with the the, the sort of not-quite-ready-for-prime-time artists that he's been working with. Um, We're finally seeing War Stories mature. Uh, I... I hope Avatar somehow can keep publishing that book forever because, you know, Garth's got his ideas and this is what he's doing right now. Um, he's his, he's just, you know, a Garth Dennis trade paperback. You should just pick it up. I mean, why not? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, no one beats Garth Ennis at war stories in the modern era because no one shows that much passion for him. You know, you can, you can just feel the passion of how he feels about these Stories of battle, and he doesn't glamorize war. There's as much horror to war in him as. Yes, uh, and the other thing is, he's very, um, with the exception of some of the comedy, and even then, he puts in a lot of uh, backstory, like the tankies ones for uh, right, yeah, for dynamite. There's comedy in that, but otherwise, he's he's trying to be very. He's, he's trying to be historically accurate and historically sensitive, and he's doing a lot of difficult-type stories. Uh, not so much on war stories, but he's not doing war comics with the hope of some licensing deal. He's doing war... He's trying to do very accurate modern war comics. He's about the... He's the only one. Yeah. These would make nice episodes of... Uh... You know, one one hour each on cable mm-hmm. TV or something like that. They right. would work fine. Um, so he he released three uh, war trades: the uh, war stories, the Johnny Red retro news story, and Dreaming Eagles about one of the Tuskegee pilots and his son and how they cope in the modern '60s during the civil rights era. 
great, great historical drama from him. He really does research on mm-hmm. all this, and you really feel like he's into his characters, you know. And uh, one we forgot that should be on here. What's the one he did, uh, Not Crazy About Love? What was the one uh, he did? Wasn't that last year? When did that finish? Um, well, that finished. Train Called we, Love. Train Called Love. That finished last year. Train so Called Love. Fit. Yeah, this finished. should be up to- Well, no, I think it finished early 2016, didn't it? Right. It finished early 2016. July. The- it finished in the summer. Train Called Love. Um, That's another Garth Ennis book. That is another Garth Ennis book. A great one. Great sort of unexpected, out of nowhere, romantic, gross-out comedy spy thing. It's just awesome. It would make a great movie, right. So look for that one as well. But he's he's following his own trail. Let's hope let's hope for the best for Garth. Um, but anyway, there was another good trade that came in, uh, the sad story, part of DC's uh, relief, and one of our current favorite Russell, uh, writers, Mark Russell, before he wrote Flintstones, he managed to crank out six or seven issues of Prez, which was about uh, D- taking DC's uh, Prez, the youngest president in the world, or the first, was it the United States' first teenage president, and really make it his own concept. Usually when writers take over like a uh, licensed thing that DC wants to continue onward for publishing rights, usually a pretty stale affair, but he kind of makes Prez his own by turning Prez into a girl and and just going for the humor. And uh, even though Corndog and Chief is not a complete trade paper bag, it only has the available issues, not those that were never uh, greenlit or published, I don't believe, but a great uh, trade from uh, 2016 and worth it as well. Uh, ben Caldwell, the artist on that, by the way, another good guy to keep on. He was, uh, after this, he went on to that really woefully titled all-girl group from Marvel called A-Force, which I okay. thought was probably the title thing in the world. Um, another good uh, trade paperback mention from 2016 was the collection of <clears throat> Brian Wood, and I'm probably fucking up, Dan, Danigel Zelzes, uh, is their 10-part star series, which uh, is real topical because everybody's into food shows nowadays. And uh, it talks about the moral and ethical choices of a down-and-out chef that once had it on and has to climb uh, back up the ladder to receive the respect of his older daughter, older strange daughter. And uh, it was a pretty good series. I mean, Brian Woods, you can argue with him about tugging on your heartstrings, but he managed to make this a fully convincing character. And the guy's uh, turnaround into a decent human being is very convincing. Just the opposite of Brian's self. Wait, did... Brian Wood did DMZ, right? Yes, that's his too. <clears throat> just, just so everybody remembers, I don't really read a lot of comics written by guys named Brian. It's just yeah, yeah just your thing anyway. It's you know, just my thing. I got burnt out in the in the yard. When he was an indie guy, the first thing you yeah, could say, even I, on I the, know, I know, he wouldn't push it. He just wouldn't push it. You know, it's like here's a concept, let's do it, crank it out when he could be doing better. But Starve works for ten issues. It works. All right, all right. You can have you can have the next one. I can have Mockingbird because Vernon hasn't read it yet. So nope. uh, what is it? What's her name? Chelsea Kane relaunched Mockingbird. Yeah. Um, sort of this. The book really didn't make any waves initially, um, even though Chelsea Kane was a uh, successful novelist with a following. 
some kind. I don't know what she writes. Um, you know what my day job is? That's even funnier that I don't know. What yeah, you're... that's don't tell me yeah. day job. Or we'll never. Anyway, so uh, <clears throat> the book came under a lot of heat because a lot of comics uh, readers did not like um, the feminism, uh, the intersectional feminism in a comic book from Marvel. Well you, well, you, well, you know those Marvel heads? They're just so tired of girls taking over their comics, man. That's their problem. They can't handle it. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, is we got to say it. Like, when Killing Joke reduced Batgirl, the Killing Joker movie reduced Batgirl to a shit character, that upset DC fans because, you know. Mad as fuck, yeah. Right. Like, DC fans have been, you know, read better female characters for quite a while. And Marvel just sort of all of a sudden did a shift where they were going to all of a sudden start having good female characters with G. Willow Wilson doing uh, Miss Marvel and Kelly Sue DeConnick doing Captain Marvel. And, you know, Marvel just can't deal with this shit. Like, I feel like DC, I, I think they have their problems, but I think they do it better. That's the fucking Nick Spencer thing. He was making his, his new team, the Social Justice Warriors, is shitting on DC's bombshells line, which is very popular with women. Oh, anyway. my God. What a weird battle to pick. Right. So anyway, so Mockingbird. Um, first issue's good. You know, like if we read it, when it came out, we'd be like, that's pretty good. I don't know if I'll be back for the next one. It's better than Hawkeye won by a lot. Let me just put it like that. As a comparison yeah. to everybody, yeah. it's it's far more distinct. It just, it just seems like it's not going to be as amusing with the setup at the end of Mockingbird 1. But then starting with the second issue, it's like, Fucking great. So, great book. Highly recommend the trade. You know, the narration, it's one of those unique things where the character comes across in the narration. You feel mm -hmm. like the character actually narrating the book. Yeah. Which is something I liked about the Supergirl book that just came out last yeah. week, too. Very similar vibe. All right, moving on to our favorite uh, trade paperback collections. Actually, this is a hardcover. Uh, Mickey's Craziest Adventure. Um one of my favorite uh, foreign uh, cartoonists, uh, puppy and, and the formal aspects, Louis Trondheim. And he uh, teams up with uh, Karamidius. I'm I don't know who this artist is, but that's how they're known in there, Karamidius. Um, they pretend to find a unearthed trove of Donald and Mickey strips in an antique store. It was like originally like an 80-page story of which they only found like 50 of the original strips or something like that. So they bought them from the antique dealer and they refurbished them and they're now printing them as a as a hardcover collection so what this is essentially it's a collection of sunday strips one page done in one gags with mickey and donald going through all these environments and situations and uh on the on the search against peg like pete and the um shit who is the guys the uh the beagle boys and uh, uncle scrooge and trondheim and karamidius make some serious formal hash with these cartoons. They are just wonderful works of art, and Mickey and Donald never look so retro and modern at the same time, and Karamidius does a great job with Trondheim. And this is a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, the stories have this overarching chase story all the way through it, but each individual effort has been made to stand on its own, and it's a wonderful art book. And you ought to, you ought to look for that at work. They should have a copy of that somewhere. And to finish off, uh, we're going to give Michael Fife a hey-ho, because even though I haven't read Copra Volume 4, I understood he actually published it, and we sold it to the shop. And I'm going to give this guy kudos for doing like a 
before the Suicide Squad was ever popular, he was doing his own version of it. Like, that's what he wanted to do, I think. When you get this impression reading Copra, this is a young artist that said, you know, I really want to do Suicide Squad, but my style will not fit in at Marvel or DC. So he just does this book on Suicide Squad. And you're wondering after like four volumes, you know, why doesn't DC give him a cease and desist letter? You know, because uh-huh. a couple of the characters are pretty spot on until you realize it's a better book. And DC <laughs> is only, yeah, DC is only like helping their own cause by let it exist because it's a better book, you know. And uh, Michael Fife, I read the earlier stuff and I enjoyed it. I must say I'm not a mainstream guy, so I kind of fell off the map. But he's a real cool indie cartoonist that lets formal experimentation get in the way of narrative and telling a story and then adding it to it at the same time with the depictions of the characters. And it's a wonderfully fresh book. So definitely worth your time if you think you might like that one. Not too bad. Not too bad. So we're, we're getting along pretty good so far. But there's the biggest bulk of our chart is uh, books that deserve honorable mention or they get an incomplete grade from us because there's a lot of unanswered questions at the end of 2016, you know, and we just say, what are these series? How, what have they added up to so far? And, uh, you know, I've covered the DC's Young Animals line. I'm going to give it a passing grade so far. Um, it hasn't done anything what you'd call artistically. But you know, I don't expect that from DC anymore. I'd like to just see really good comics. <laughs> I don't expect that you know from I mean? DC anymore. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that for whatever reasons they are, I think my favorite is probably the uh, Doom Patrol book by Nick Derrickton and Daniel Way. And... I think it, it, it follows perfectly in the Grant Morrison vein of uh, – but it's a little more coherent, and Nick Darrington is a great artist. And whoever's coloring that book is great. So they're better than most of their books. I'll give them that. You know? I mean if you're – if you gravitate towards some of this stuff – like I would rather read Mother – what's it? Was it? Is it Mother Crisis or something? I forget. It's the one, the Batman-related book. Uh, it's got a female Batman character in it. Mother Panic, that's it. I'd rather read that than Batman, okay? So that's just me, you know. So they get a pass grade this year. Um, another one that gets honorable mention or incomplete, Greg, and you can handle this one. Cinema Purgatorio, Alan Moore's anthology horror book for uh, Avatar that had a very successful Kickstarter uh, to sort of pay for some of it. And uh, it's been, I think, what are we on? It's issue seven? Seven, I think, yeah. Seven or eight, and one of the stories is finally tolerable. Um, the robot one is finally tolerable to me. Oh, okay. uh, they got a That's different good. artist on it, and it's finally almost, like, I can stomach it as opposed to just getting nauseous. <laughs> Excuse me. Is it, this isn't the Pokemon one, is it? It's the fucking Pokemon one. I hate that shit. <laughs> oh, anyway, so but I mean, Alan Moore's had an amazing year on it. He's he did a Son of Kong thing about the guy who did the art. Uh, um, what's his name? Uh, shit, Marion something. Was it? No, uh, no, it in, wasn't him. It was the guy who did the special effects for uh, Willis Willis Cooper o- O'Brien. Willis O'Brien. And I'm reading the first one and I'm like, what the hell's going on? Because I wrote I wrote an essay about Son of Kong and I, I did a bunch of research on him for it. So it's like I knew this story and Moore just did it beautifully. 
And then he did this uh, thing about the Warner Brothers as the Marx Brothers. He did it beautifully. And it's just like all of a sudden Cinema Purgatorio was becoming this kind of important book because Alan Moore's always had a relationship with film. Whether it was, oh shit, wouldn't it be amazing if Alan Moore actually, you know, participated in his films to, oh shit, Alan, an Alan Moore movie's coming out. I can't wait to hear him say that he hopes, you know, DC eats rotten shit and dies. Right? Well, they like, may have- so he's always had like a relationship with it. And Cinema Purgatorio is the first time you find out that he actually gives a shit about it. Yeah. It's a mixed bag. It's an anthology that the first couple of stories, the, there's a, the great Alan Moore story. There's the mixed bag Garth Ennis story. Yep. And there's, it just kind of goes down really fast yep. after that. After there's, that, you got, you got this Max yeah. Brooks giant ant bullshit. You got, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Pokemon monster story. You got, you the, got uh, Kaiju at the end with some beautiful right. art, but, sh- but the other thing That's is, how long are those stories? Six or seven pages? Six to eight? I think they're segments. I think they're just cut up from a larger story. I don't even think they they're end They're terribly up. paced. I mean, that's the thing you realize about the Garth Ennis. Garth has no idea how to write eight pages. No yeah. fucking idea. Too small. He just he could do that for like a one-line joke and turn it into eight pages, but you're right. Eight pages are just too restrictive. Eight pages him. is sitting around the bar in Chronicles of Wormwood. Like, there. yeah. So he gets a, a cinema purgatorio gets gets a honorable mention and an incomplete grade right. because it's indispensable, but yet two thirds of its content are. Ugh. Yeah, let's see another one that uh, makes the grade uh, is the Archie line. Now, despite the horrendous failure of uh, them to be able to finish their horror line at ever Afterlife with Archie and Sabrina, which we got annual issues way back when I can't even remember how long ago that was. Sometime in twenty sixteen. Yeah. Um, their regular line transferred into a nice indie showcase for people, um, despite the fact that Mark Wade writes Archie and they let goofballs like Hughes do Betty and Veronica. Uh, they have a really nice uh, talent pool of young indie people that are just dying to tell Archie stories. The energy and excitement feels it there, and they're very nice lines. So they get a they get an honorable mention for keeping that part going anyway. Uh, and let's, uh, let's throw in a plug here. Uh, we're not going to be talking about media. No. Other than comics this episode, but uh, Riverdale is starting soon. Yes. So check that out uh, if you're an Art- Afterlife with Archie fan or just an Archie fan currently in general. It's from uh, the guy who uh, who relaunched, Ar- who revived Archie, resurrected Archie, Robert. Roberto Ar- Aguirre Sacasa. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so moving on to a book I don't think I've read I haven't. Japanese manga anime fans reunite. Even though Andrew and I wouldn't touch the stuff with a 10-foot pole, I have to respect the uh, creative team on Monstrous for doing this wonderfully dense, thick, loving horror story in the Japanese traditional mode about magical creatures and stuff like that. Uh, It doesn't interest me, but I'm impressed by its density and the amount of work that they put into it. And my customers seem to love it. So... There's some there I'm not getting. Maybe I'm just not a manga guy. Okay, I'm not into it. But it seems to be like one of our more successful titles around the shop. So take a look at that if you have any sympathy towards anime or manga because uh, everybody who reads it just raves about the fucking thing. So I'm like, okay, hey, it's your bag, man, you know. 
Now, let's see. Incomplete, Ringside. Oh, my gosh. I love this book. The first volume of this is wonderful. Where I know. The fuck and then it's like I, I, you talked about it. I sat down. I read the whole volume. And then, you know, I started catching up. And I was like, uh, what's going on here, guys? Yeah. It, it, I think it's just one of those things really – like in the second series, the artist uh, Nick Barber mm. – uh, I think he really adapts. Like the first issue had this real simple style, but when you get to volume two, it's like ultra simple. Like it's almost like fanish in some ways. And it didn't turn me off because it was him. If you continue to tell it because of the same style, but he's obviously either has less time to do it or doesn't have time to do it period. And the two issues they squeaked out after the first arc are really hurt momentum wise. So incomplete, darn it. Uh, low, yeah, it's a low key story. And, uh, you know, we were hoping to make some hash out of it, but I don't know if it's ever going to finish. It's just like one of those comic series is that you start, you fall in love with to some degree, at least you want to read it, and then it just falls off the face of the earth. And what's weird <clears throat> is is that, you know, that is the danger of having our uh, indie books here. Like, and I mean, it's a danger now in, in the big two as well. Like, you you invest in these books and, and they you don't might make not it. get it. <sighs> Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's an occupational hazard when reading indie comics more so as well. Well, anyway, uh, what do you call it? Letter 44 managed to trudge through another year, and uh, it, it hasn't lost too many readers, although it did lose Andrew. Yeah, it did. Yep. And uh, I'm, I'm like, God, I only got like six more to go or seven more to go, and I just wish they'd fucking come out so I could finish it at this point. Because <laughs> when you, well, you know, when you're into like a book for 30-odd issues – you're like, okay, is it going to happen or not? You know, and I'm like, God, ever since Charles Soleil got sucked up by the big two, I guess this thing is, I mean, but it's his. Mm-hmm. And you think that he would nurture it a little more because he was well into the home stretch here, you know. I'm, I, maybe he didn't have it finished by the time he went to work at the big two, but didn't didn't matter. Um, he's, he's really got an uphill climb. I wish him the best. I'm going to finish it, goddamn his ass, but what are you going to do? Uh, Injection, another one of those <laughs> disappointing indie books, but from uh, Warren Ellis, who's a figure who's been known to disappoint by losing interest in projects and kind of falling off the earth himself. Injection was not a half bad book. Declan Shelby's a good artist. He only was working with five characters, okay, so it was very structured and disciplined. And it falls off the face of the earth, and he's doing other stuff. So I'm like, Okay, did it get optioned? And maybe it did. Does it even matter anymore? I mean, so many comics are optioned. Even if I was a comics writer, somebody optioned my work. I wouldn't assume anything until I saw him start filming it with my own eyes. But anyway, Warren Ellis, uh, if you don't finish this book, I think that's it between you and me. I love this thing. All right. Honorable mentions. Got to go to Beto Hernandez for Blubber, which is a totally uncensored, uninhibited, unbridled look at just penises and anuses and body orifices and fucking lots of aliens and all sorts of creatures doing weird things to one another. There's no plot other than to satisfy whims to draw sexually active creatures from other planets. He gets my vote on that. Uh, Thank you, Brandon. That was hilarious. (laughs) Great stuff, man. This is one of my top five comic creators, too, Beto Hernandez. Uh, Jupiter's Legacy, Volume 2, well, hot on the heels of the success of one, uh, we got two. But, again, Frank quietly uh, fucked up the deadlines, and we got four issues in pretty good order, and now the last one is not going to be out to the end of February, maybe. So, I don't know. We've pulled it again with Frank quietly. 
apparently. You know, he gets an incomplete grade until we get this last fucking chapter. Now, I could actually talk a little bit about Manifest Destiny since I stopped reading it in 2016. Yeah, very good. <sighs> so have they finished the Sasquatch arc? They did. They did. It was fine. It tied it up. It, it did... It led into the uh, beginning of the series and the motivation behind the series. Because, as you know, he shows them this uh, – these are spoilers, kids. Um, he shows it this weird skull at the beginning when he's initiating them, like recruiting them to this journey. And he shows them this weird skull, and it's one of the Yeti creatures. So uh, what's his name? Uh, Dingus gets to tell that story of uh, how it all started. And it incorporates another story about – this magical presence, which, man, I'm surprised they, they still have enough men to, to continue the story because they all seem to be dropping, you know. But uh, Manifest Destiny kind of got an incomplete grade. You fell off the map with that last one because it was getting too slow and, and all the elements that we liked about the book seem to be missing now, you know, earlier on. That was the big thing. So if it survives into 2017, cool, but it's got an incomplete grade as to whether it'll survive on my shelf. Let's put it that way. Uh, God damned. All right. Um, Jason Aaron and RM Guerra need to take a piss and do a heavy metal type story, which is totally disgusting. And they managed to with the retelling of the story of Cain and his efforts to kill himself in biblical earth where everybody is disgusting, including Noah and his sons in the ark and everything. Now, if you like heavy violence and well-rendered primitive beings beat the shit out of each other, this is a book for you. Uh, it's five issues of taking the piss, heavy metal style, and you know who your audience is. So, worth a mention in uh, 2016, I thought. Hip Hop Family Tree, man. I got a few of these under my belt, but I didn't read it long term. You you weren't a hip hop guy, right? Ed Pisker. Fanographics put out, they finished up uh, the history. I don't know if he finished the history. He got to a point of modern hip hop history. But Ed Pisker uh, has been doing these as a series of comic books, and they're just incredibly dense uh, vignettes about the history of hip-hop and all the different stories that go into all these characters and stuff like that. Really nice stuff if you're into it. I'm not a hip-hop guy, so I read a couple issues and I was good. But, again, this is uh, really hard research stuff. Uh, Weird Detective, that's one you got into. I got into Weird Detective, yeah. Now that's... Uh, not remember, it's Fred Valenti, and who's the artist on that? Hugh Villanova. It's, a, it's an all right sort of Lovecraft thing, you know, Martian Manhunter Lovecraft thing. It's the kind of book that DC and Marvel doesn't put out anymore. No, I mean, and they really don't. And it's, who puts that out? Uh, that's Dark Horse, I believe. That's okay. So Dark Horse has their, like, weird detective uh, uh, alien uh, resident alien sort of subset. But, yeah. It's pretty good. I hope they do another one. It wasn't great, but it was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I, I, again, it, it hits all the right bases. It has humor, the right amount of humor, uh, black death, aliens, snarky cops. Good story, and I'd like to see more of it. On the other hand, we're not sure if we want to see a whole lot more of Kill or Be Killed, which is Ed Brubaker's latest masterpiece with Sean Phillips. <sighs> You said you didn't care for the main protagonist character at all, which seems to be a common problem with this. Yeah, he kind of reminds me of Nick Spencer. Um, ah, oops. Uh, yeah, it's just... 
I mean, we've we've talked about it at length on the show before, so you can go back and listen to me say terrible things about it. But you know, it it, it got less awful at some point, but it hasn't gotten better. You know, it's the biggest waste of Sean Phillips ever in his career, and I'm including when he did like Marvel shit, like. Well, and the funny thing is, like five issues in, and I just want all the protagonists to be dead. Yeah. Yeah, I want them to go away and quit telling me bad stories about themselves. Uh, it, it, it's it's weird that a Brubaker book should be so unpersonable and abrasive the way it is, but it just really rubs you the wrong way, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, again, an incomplete grade. Honorable mention just because it's semi-readable, I guess. Um, Lady Killer, too. Okay, I'm a little more in love with Joelle Jones. I don't think she's a great writer, but she... Manages to get it through at Lady Killer 2, and Lady Killer 1 was last year, too, finishing up. And uh, she's doing that new Supergirl book, too. And they're all really nice, fresh, uh, what do you call that, uh, interpretations of uh, kind of retro characters. And she's definitely a talent to watch, so she get an honorable mention from me. Uh, let's see, Black Monday Murders. You know, that was a weird one out of left field. Jonathan Hickman could be either real dry or he could be interesting. Uh, he, he proves to be interesting here in the story, like this occult family that, that organizes all crime through a corporation. It sounds trite, but he has a certain depth with the murders and how they handle one another. And Tom Coker's art, you remember him? He used to do a lot of good stuff back in the day, and he got convinced to do a comic story here with him. And uh, when this gets invited into a trade, I think this would be worth the time. I liked it quite a bit. And let's see, Demonic. This is the uh, kill or or kill or be killed book that I like because uh, Chris Sabella <laughs> and Nico Walter actually convincingly tell the story of a guy who is more or less possessed by a demon, and it's pretty obvious. There's no psychological thing about it, and the way it treats him and his family and everything. And uh, and this uh, Nico, who's the artist on here again? Uh, Nico Walter, just great visuals. Um, five issues in, we got one more to go for the finale. I'm looking forward to it, but Demonic looks like uh, something I really like. Oh God, I'm going to do a tiny bit of talking here as we burn through the next couple. Lake of Fire. Uh, I advertise this to my customers as uh, a Roger Corman film where English crusaders face aliens, and that's pretty much the plot line. And it's five issues of uh, Mayhem and really good one by Nathan Fairburn and Matt Smith. Uh, this would make a great little B film. I'd love to see it. John Carpenter could even direct it. It would work out just <laughs> fine. Um, we talked a little about this. I don't know if you ever got into Jim, Jim Thompson's Killer Inside no. based on that 50s noir. You know, he's still carrying on the energy pretty good about this uh, killer who's a law enforcement officer in the 1950s. And these are based on what? Uh, a book, this is based on a book by Jim Thompson. Is that the author's name? Yeah. Okay. Um, pretty good stuff. Uh, Devin Faraci and uh, Vic Mella Hatra do a good job of translating this, and uh, I'm enjoying reading it. Uh, New Love and Rockets. What's to say? These guys just work seamlessly like a train. You know, I read the eight volumes of Love and Rockets, the new stories, to catch up and precede this, and it's like I didn't miss a beat with these guys. They just continued on with their story seamlessly. And what's kind of cool about the Hernandez brothers is that they can pick you up in the middle of anywhere and lay you down in the middle of anywhere and you feel fully completed with your comic reading experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Love and Rockets isn't for anyone. It's got really severe themes, you know, a lot of 
a lot of death, a lot of sex. But, you know, that's if, if that stuff doesn't bother you, it's a very complex formal experiment always. Um, Knight's Dominion, man. What happened to Knight's Dominion on that latest issue by Ted Nifa? Uh, so, yeah, Knight's Dominion, I mean, you know, the first issue was really dense. The second issue added some personality to it. The third issue crapped out. Or are we on the fourth the, issue? The fourth issue, yeah. It started out <clears> as a nice little personality um, thing where you get these different characters and their motivations. But in issue four, it kind of devolves into a big, like, spectacle war scene. You yes, know? and it's and you're just like... Ted, I don't remember all your characters. You've got 30 of them. Yeah, and we're trying to remember their names. Now, this is Ted Nifa, who's an indie creator that we really normally love his work. Yeah. It's, it's generally damn near flawless. I mean, I like his stuff. Yeah, and Princess this, Og, man. Like, we were all about Princess Og. I shed tears over Princess Og. Um, yeah. And, you know, like, I just can't bring it to the table for Knight's Dominion. I want to like this book because I like Ted Nifa so much. And I'm going to finish the first arc. But there's just, what did you say? You said, I don't even know why there's an editor on here. There's no evidence. Right. Yeah, of I don't, yeah. Okay. I mean, the editor on that book must just be like, the, their job must just be to call Ed and ask for the art. Yeah, because I didn't see any evidence of an editor there either. It was very, it was hard to follow. It was very jumpy and cutty. And and anybody who read this say, Ted, something's not working here. We got to fix this, you know. So I don't know whether he's getting paid or not. Maybe that's it. We were talking about a reworked uh, Catwoman story, so maybe that's it. And it's for the money he makes at Oni, he's probably just cranking it out. I don't know, but he's got to tie this shit up. What does he do? He does this two-page spread of all these dead demon warriors and it's like the most <laughs> unimpressive thing I've ever seen in my life I mean even Games of Thrones looks better than this <laughs> so anyway we wish, we wish Ted good luck on series we don't want him to fail but <sighs> alright <laughs> alright <clears throat> uh, Hadrian's Wall is by uh, you got their names Andy I got their names Kyle Higgins Alex Siegel and Rod Reese Right. Um, it's the guys who did this other book called uh, Cowl, which was uh, oh, Unions yeah. and Superheroes. Great art Chicago. in Chicago. Great art, uh, some writing problems. Cowl went away, and it, it kind of sucked because, like, you know, it was a police procedural, and it was interesting, and then it just it didn't make it. Uh, Hadrian's Wall is... Same guys doing sci-fi mystery. It's not deep, but it's all right. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Kind of pro it's procedural, too, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And, I mean, it's like a big selling point on the book is just Rod Rees' art. He's a uh, digital painter-looking type guy. I mean, he's kind of like a more formal Stuart Immerman almost. Yeah, it's like a mystery story. It takes place in outer space on a satellite or a something. I don't know, some kind of some okay, kind of special. Yeah, it yeah, space, yeah. right, right. It's it, now my only incomplete was we don't have a fourth issue. We've been waiting a while now, and uh, they, they got the first three cranked out like uh, Jesus. And now I'm still waiting for a fourth, and I haven't seen it. So I'm like, well, we got to keep going here, buddy. The mystery's not solved yet. So it's uh. I'm thinking, okay, we're just going to give it honorable mention, but it's still incomplete yet, don't darn it. 
And then uh, I Hate Fairyland. Now, why is that an honorable mention? Because you just can't get into it? Well, I, I did love the video game issue. And I realized Scotty's, what would you call it? His earnestness here. Um, if you told me that uh, Scotty uh, Young could get a joke through, what, 10, 12 issues of Fairyland, I would have said you're crazy. But he's managed to pull it off. And uh, that one particular issue with the video game actually struck me because it was a nice exercise in cartooning, which was also pushing formal possibilities yeah. around. He had the inclusion of another artist to help him out with the visuals. And the character itself seemed um, having redeeming facet, as it were, by the end of the story. So that helped a lot, you know. What do you like about the book? I mean, I just think it's funny. You always feel like you get your money's worth, even if it's a fast read. He's got a lot of detail. He's just really good at his job. He's really good at pacing out an issue. He's really good at illustrating it. And he's really good at writing this thing he's doing. And it's, uh, you know, Scotty Young, I don't even know what <clears throat> actual comics he did. I, I first. I mean, I know he did some limited series, but, you know, I've always known him from his cover. He did a lot of Oz, right? Oz, yeah. Oz was his big guy. That was his narrative stuff, but he's he's primarily known these days for I Hate Fairyland and variant covers. Right, and he does these cute but sort of nasty variant covers, like, you know. And yeah, he's so, got a kind of Bill Watterson style. Yeah, and so I Hate Fairyland, it just, it always strikes me, um... You know, I had some problems with how they closed it up, and then I read his, you know, talking about going forward and what he's going to do. And the Flintstones is a little bit like this, too. Um, it's nice to read a comic where you don't feel like you have to, if you miss an issue, you're going to be shit out of luck. Or if it gets canceled, you're going to feel like you invested too much. I Hate Fairyland is like a series of done-in-ones that are just in sequential order. Oh, perfect. That's what more comics should be nowadays. More comics should actually be like that. I think that's a, a definitely a redeeming facet. Oh, yeah, right. because, I mean, then when it goes, you don't care that much. Right, right. It, it lived its life. It got to fulfill its potential. Let's put it that way. All right, well, I'm going to burn through a couple of them here. Moonshine, uh, that's the current horror series uh, with uh, Depression-era rum-running and uh, Appalachian people by uh, uh, Andrew's favorite writer. Um, what's, your, what's your favorite writer's Ryan name again? Azzarello. Hey, oh, I read Machete or whatever the hell that one was called, but continue. Oh, okay. Anyway, Moonshine uh, continues along the crime thing with 100 Bullets. Uh, it, it reminds you of 100 Bullets. It may very well uh, uh, repeat the star power of that because it's a really nicely told story and God Rizzo, Rizzo just really doesn't do anything wrong he's just one of the greatest artists working in the comics medium right now period he's someone I always point younger artists to when they're asking to figure out how to draw comics and this is a good good me mainstream read right now even though it's R rated for violence and sex and here's another DC one that I really picked up on called New Superman now and it's 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 pretty funny because Gene, you know, Gene Luen Yang, he's like that indie guy that's done a bunch of books. Well, he gets to write this. And it's about, okay, apparently you might know this because you're a little younger than I am, but China has its own version of the JLA. I forget what they're called, but they have one. And uh, Gene's character here is a guy 
who's the result of an experiment by a rival Chinese government agency that's trying to curry favor more so. So they invent their own JLA that's composed of new Superman, a surrogate Batman who's kind of a big tubby fellow, and the Wonder Woman character. And he just has so much fun with this book because the new Superman is a schmuck. In his private life, he was a bit of a dick, like 20-year-old, and you really don't like him that much. When he gets all this awesome stuff, he begins to realize it, and it works for him, and he turns into more of a responsible person. And it's so fun to watch the character develop over the first arc. And his interactions with his teammates are funny, yet they get the job done. And they're very artfully done. And it's got to be my like my favorite Superman book, although it has nothing to do with Superman other than the fact that he's the Chinese Superman. That's it. You know? Right. And I'm digging it. DC's got a success there, but it sells like shit and it'll probably be gone in a couple of months, so enjoy it while you can. Anyway, Violent Love. Uh, I'm trying to remember who – I don't know if Dark Horse puts this out. Dark Horse only boom. That was a boom. But uh, Frank Barbie here and Victor Santos, he's an artist that you're familiar with. Uh, they're doing a really nice uh, romantic crime noir right now. Uh, nothing new about it, two issues in, but artfully told. And Santos' art adds this real nice expressionist tone to the noir story, which I like a lot. So that's doing fine. Um, Fred Van Lente, the guy that just won't go away, is doing uh, a comic book history of comics, right? And he's teamed up with the cartoonist Ryan Dunlavy, who I'm sure is a really nice fellow, but I really don't like his cartooning at all. I think he works at Wizard Magazine. I did. I know it looks it looks kind of in that mold, but he gets you through it, and that's really what you have to do. And Ben Lente in the second issue, we've got two of them out in 2016. Um, the first one is pre-superheroes, the beginnings of American comic books, and the second one is the beginning of the superhero era. And he provides you with facts and keeps it moving, and, you know, 20-something pages later, you just don't realize how fast this read was. And the cartooning is enough to get you through it, and it's a really nice selection of little bits of history that he pulls out to kind of weave this thing going. And so far, two issues, and I'm good. And what else we got here on the hit parade? Ether. Uh, Matt Kent, that writer that we love to talk about so much, uh, he's winning me over and losing you, I guess. I'm not sure. When's the last time you read Matt Kent? I don't know. Uh, he teamed up with one of my favorite guys, David Rubin, who worked on that Paul Pope stuff. And they got this thing called Ether, and it's about this uh, detective who goes from, like, regular Earth to a fantasy dimension to you help know, himself. Like he's uh, Adam Strange or something. There you go. Adam Strange. Good call. Except that the better is it the better ray doesn't quite work the same way for him anyway. Uh, good stuff though, very good stuff. And two issues in, and we're hooked. Here, you, ArcLight's coming back. Did you know this? I didn't know ArcLight was coming back. Yes, yes, it is. I don't know and, why uh, I was like, why is ArcLight on here? When's the last yeah. time I read an ArcLight? Oh God, I couldn't. I couldn't. It was been two years. I don't know. But Brandon Graham series is coming back with that woman. Uh, What's her name? Marion Mar Churchland. Yeah. You know, and her, her, this book had like such a calm, yeah, drug induced. That was a good, that was the first two issues of Eight House. That was good. Yeah. And I just said to myself, oh, they're going to do more. Well, I got to look for more. So that's kind of where it was at with me anyway. I, I said, I got to look for that this year. Um, let me see here. We, we finish off the odds and ends with uh, one of my favorite current books called Slam, 
by Pamela Ribbon and Veronica Fish. Uh, this made my staff pick of the week in the shop because um, it was a real kind of girl positive story about a young lady who gets involved with roller derby and proceeds to learn about the sport and how to get into trials and what kind of physical routine she's going to have to get into to compete on a serious level. And I found it a real healthy, exciting, kind of honest book about the entire thing. And all the creators take it quite seriously, but they also imbue this real sense of warmth and fun to the book, which, I don't know, it was just a joy to read, and I'm going to keep reading it. Um, get used to that, Mike. Uh, anyway, Motor Crush... <laughs> Which was an indie success recently. Which I, I haven't have read and I'm going to, I know. That's all right. I forgive you. Um, anyway, this is one that came up. We got one issue in 2016, but I had to mention to it. It's uh, we called the Batgirl team. Remember when they called them Batgirling? Uh, Cameron Stewart, Babs Tal, and Brendan Fletcher. Well, who knew that they would perfect their ideas with Motor Crush, which is kind of a, uh, a hybrid R-rated extreme sport girl riding a motorcycle who gets into drugs and all this other stuff. And it's high-charged, and he manages to formally introduce the social media and the word balloons and the captioning, and it works wonderfully. And uh, since they can do what they want with the creature, uh, excuse me, creation, um, this book just hit on all six cylinders and just took off. So I'm looking for Motor Crush. That's another good one. Whew, man, I'm talking a lot today. I I'm talking a lot. He doesn't, I, he doesn't I tell me to read mediocre comics. Because <clears throat> I don't buy my comics from Vernon. I live too far away. So it, it doesn't matter what he tells me. All yeah. right. You can start off the best, the best of 2016. And I, we'll have some disclaimers, too. Okay, so best of 2016. We're going to start out with uh, Lazarus by uh, Greg Rucka and uh, Michael Lark and a Tyler Boss inks some who's, who's the Tyler anchor. Boss? He inks. He oh. assists on the inks. Okay. Uh, this is a book that um, you know Michael Lark has been a favorite since I saw my first ad for Terminal City. Not even the book itself. So you know, long time. Rucka, I've had my ups and downs with a lot more downs lately. Including the first arc of Lazarus. And then he slowly started turning the book around. It's turned into the top of the stack on its weeks, uh, you know, when it's coming out. It, it's had some bumps this year, let's be honest. Yeah, that, that that's the uh, that's the main crux of it. I think they only released three or four issues this year. And, yep, and, and they... Yeah. It, you forgot. It, it's like Ruck have got too focused on setting up the future and not enough on how much we wanted to see what was going on with forever. Yeah. Sometimes you wonder about creators, whether or not they take an objective look at how their book feels when it's being published. You know what I mean? Like they have these stories going on and they want to tell them, but at the same time, you're like, well, what about me? Look at it from my viewpoint of how I'm getting these bits. It doesn't relate to you the same way, you know? Right. Also, in uh, 2016, uh, was a guy who also put out three or four issues, but you know what? He's in the same league, Stan Sakai, with his Yosage Ojimbo. I mean, this thing is, what, 25, 30 years old, maybe? I don't know at this point. And he still manages to keep fresh the uh, stories of a masterless samurai, or Ronin, through medieval pan, uh, 
interesting and educating and warm and thought provoking. And uh, he still cranks it out, man. I don't know how sensitive is. He's up there. He's not, maybe maybe not as old as Richard Corbin, obviously, but he's got to be up there anyway. Uh, that was a favorite. Uh, another one that we're going to get collected finally into a trade is called The Last Contract. That was a, I think, four or five issue miniseries by Ed Brisson and artist Lissandro Esteran. And it was nice. The Last Contract uh, is a story about an aged guy who used to be a hitman who gets wrapped into the old game one more time as some of his old ghosts won't lie down and die the way they should. And Brisson is kind of a minor indie writer. He's got some good ideas. Sometimes his execution's a little flawed, but he got lucky with Last Contract because it flows perfectly. All the dialogue rings true, and Lissandro Etherton manages to deliver, deliver on the visuals, which have to be violent, yet at times soft and thought-provoking as well. Another good one the is The Spire. Go for it. The Spire is uh, finished up in June. The trade's out. It's very expensive. Um, it puts nine thick issues all in one. It does. and I mean, the art's so good. The Jeff Stokely art's so good. You wish they would have done... Uh, you wish they would have done uh, hardcover, some bigger pages, uh, especially since it's so vertical, actually. Uh, but Simon Spurrier writes it. These are the guys who did, what was it, Five Gun Gorilla or whatever? Six Gun Gorilla. Six Gun Gorilla. Uh, it's an amazing book. I mean, I think, what, like second or third issue, you started going, wait a second, if they don't screw this up, this is going to be amazing. Yes. And then it kept going and it kept going. And they never screwed anything up. And it was just like, huh? So, the, yeah. That, that even with the finish, even this crazy sort of finish that they do, they pull it off. Yeah. And it's just like you just want to read it in some deluxe over over uh, oversized printing. To get everything in one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, the, the, these two are definitely got some good chemistry because when we're doing like two really good masterpiece stories in a row, uh, such as Six Gun Gorilla and even the more ambitious Spire, these guys really are just hitting it. And uh, while one is kind of a dark comedy, the other one is just like classic whodunit with a lot of members of the court and all these different people you can suspect and different layers of uh, ethnic or alien diversity. And they kind of just... Just, just work in a beautiful tandem with one another. Let's see. We're talking about uh, Simon Spurrier and Jeff Stokely. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Great cartoonist, that Jeff Stokely. So, you know, beat your uh, retailer to get a copy of The Spire because he may not stock it because it's a twenty nine ninety nine book, but it's definitely worth every cent, you know, if you work some kind of deal with him anyway, you know. Talk to him gently, you know. Rub his arm. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, Harrow County, another big one for 2016. This is one that uh, snuck us out. You know, Colin Bunn needed something to do after he finished uh, Sixth Gun. So he started writing um, Harrow County, the story of this reincarnated witch. And he brings along artist uh, Tyler Crook, which is well known for his work with the Hellboy universe and PPRD and all that. And uh, 
absolutely wonderful, wonderful watercolor paintings. It's got to be one of the most beautifully painted books of the year. Uh, and it's got some horrific imagery that, that I call Harrow County the book you want to read if, if, if Providence is too hairy for you. Let's put it that way. You know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, but Harold County does have its uh, its moments. Let's put it that way. It's a good scary book along the Stephen King lines, and the character is nice. The uh, the witch girl is an actual likable character, which is nice. Very opposite with things she has to deal with too. Uh, hey, one of our favorite guys, Roger Landrich, came back in 2016 with uh, he did with Baker Street Peculiars, which was another one of his uh, all ages books for. Boom or kaboom. Um, he didn't do the art, but somebody who looks a lot like Roger Langridge did the art. Uh, Andy Hurst. Yeah. Uh, you know, it had a couple rocky issues, but it, it finished up beautifully. I mean, that's kind of the thing is that for quite a long time, Langridge could do no wrong in my eyes. And then Rocky and Bullwinkle happened. And we haven't even <laughs> talked about Betty Boop. So, Baker Street Peculiars, you know, you start seeing cracks in guys, you know, armor, so to speak. Uh, especially if they've been great, you know, it's just like, when are they going to fall? Like, look at Brubaker, like... Yeah, you got to write a turd every once in a while. Uh, you know, but that stinky of a turd after from that, that peak that Brubaker was on last year, it's a bad one. So, Baker Street Peculiars was, was sort of troublesome, and then it just wasn't. It was just... You had the story of these, like, three, like, um, waifs of the streets of uh, London, I guess, and how they meet up with this Sherlock Holmes character to solve a mystery that's taking over their city. And the momentum of it is just really good. And and Roger Landridge knows how to pace things to keep them going from one act to another to another. He's very stage-oriented. And he just keeps it moving. And it's a, it was a real pleasure to read. It's a nice all-ages read, too. You can, yep. you can have your advanced reading kid read it. And you don't have to worry about it. Good stuff, man. Roger Landridge, he needs to find some commercial properties, you know. I was just looking at some of his Muppet show he did for Marvel way back when. Uh -huh. I'm like, my God, this guy needs to just keep working until we're dead. Uh, another big one that uh, hit the spot. Although didn't leave you with a happy feeling was uh, Kaiju, Kaiju Max season two. Did I, I told you that he commented on us? Xander Cannon listened to our podcast and he commented. He retweeted. He he's like, I don't know. He said like they think I'm crazy or something. Like they compared to me a Saturday morning cartoon and then questioned my sanity. Exactly. I think, I think he thought it was cute, but anyway, yeah. I mean, Kaiju Max season two. How do you follow up Kaiju Max season one? How do you just season two had some just amazing issues. Season two finally resolved Electrador at the last moment. He, it, 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 it finished. It answered a question. The first issue asked, and you know, the answer was just not. You know, not what you wanted to hear. Not what you wanted to hear. You know, it turns out that Kaiju, Kaiju just don't live. You know, we, you know, you, Ultraman doesn't just put Kaiju in in a version of Oz. You know, the world is the wire. Yeah. You know, it's just like yeah, that's it's true. It's just I so hard, and it's so good, and I mean, it's just 
Because the first series had some moments that... It had some comedy to some degree It had some well. comedy to some degree, and it also had some sort of social commentary that it didn't seem like he had it there. Like, the the prison, the, the guard falling for that one monster, that whole right, thing. Right. But this season has just been hit after hit after hit after hit, and it's just been... He's 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 talked about fucking kaiju like he did an is- issue where it's like a Gamera movie and like what happens to those kids from Gam when it turns out Gamera is really not that good. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah, like the, the realization that comes to their their little heads when they realize, oh my god, he accidentally killed them first. I'm sure it was an accident, and then it happens again and again and again, and they can't deny it after a while. You it's know that just, it's just lumbering yeah. Uh, it's stuff like that, that that infuses Kaiju Max with its uh, originality and and reflection on humanity. Yeah, you know? it's so heavy, and it's just so uh, relationship between two uh, people that aren't even the same species. Uh, There's that, but then this that, season also the, had the female cop whose brothers the. Uh, Mecha Godzilla and their yes. father dies, and I mean it's just it's awful. Like I mean he's he's figured out how to do <laughs> you know, human drama and just you know turn the corkscrew into your heart. Exactly, exactly. This this just pulls on your heartstrings, and the, the stories of the cops that exist around the kaiju and the sad on the run constantly lives that the oh. kaiju have. It's all unstable, and oh my gosh! I mean, when he goes to the darkest depths of the ocean, that even the cops mm. pull off doing, yeah, and then the he manages to pull kaiju. off doing integrating Chitholu as a kaiju. I mean, it's kind of just awesome. It is. It really is. This is a read that everybody who can deal with dark fiction should handle yeah. because they look like Saturday morning cartoon characters, but their lives are very much infused reality. You know, yeah. uh, great stuff. Of cartoons. Probably. But a bump, you know. I would. I have to argue that even though this doesn't like, if we're gonna. We're finishing with the usual one, and I didn't know what else to do. But if I had to pick a, a favorite of the year, I would have to say that the Flintstones kind of ranks up there with my enjoyment of what we're talking about later, and it's all due to this guy Mark Russell who wrote that book Prez that we talked yeah. about earlier. And he teams up with Stephen Pugh to do a unique version of the Flintstones that's not really all ages. I mean, there's no sex or violence in it, maybe implied, but never shown. Um, but it's a real thought-provoking book nonetheless yeah. for Flintstones. It is. It's very – it's like what if the Flintstones was a Norman Lear sitcom? Yeah, and they're all discovering things too. Yeah. That's the fun thing about it. We're discovering them, and they're discovering things. And they're discovering it just, yeah, the it, world is changing. It's just—it's a very interesting take on it because it's not—it's not something you necessarily would think of with a with a cartoon adaptation where everything stays static. This is very much about the world of Bedrock changing and people reacting to it, and Fred and Wilma reacting to it, and Barney. To some degree, and um, especially the kids, have after being yeah. absent for most of the issues, have become very important. Bam Bam and Pebbles. Yeah, 
And it's never traditional. It's never, it's never a sitcom humor. It's never a family sitcom humor. They didn't go that route. Instead, you know, Pebbles and Bam Bam get to, Pebbles especially gets to be her own character. She's not just there to to facilitate jokes, and neither are the parents. No, it, it's it's amazing the um, the modern world they quote unquote live in, and all the conveniences they have versus the 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 contradictions of them doing a lot of things for the new for the first time and how it's affecting them. You know, what I mean, like they have this pre and one of the jokes that Mark Russell carries over effectively is they have all this modern contrivances all around them to make their lives easier and everything, but they're still learning. They're still figuring things out from a social viewpoint. And it's a wonderfully layered commentary. And uh, who'd have guessed for a Hanna-Barbera book that we'd be asking the mysteries of the universe, you know what I mean? And each issue usually has one or two themes, although issue seven, the one that came out this Wednesday, was just a killer in terms of how it started and finished. And it was one continuous story, and that was unique. So he got a little more ambitious this time out. But this book has continuously marveled with its high level of quality from issue to issue. Like, some may not hit as well as others, but God, even the lower ones. Whoa, you know, three. You didn't like three. Was three the one I didn't like? Anyway. um, And, I mean, we've got Steve Pugh on a monthly comic with funny dinosaurs and what – yeah. Yeah. There you go. I love the infusion of the dinosaurs. It's just as inventive as the show, if not more ironic. Right. You know, because you know, they, they deal with the death. Like on the TV show, you never deal with the, the slaveness of the dinosaurs and their lackeys, but the comic goes with it constantly, you know. How you yeah. doing? Oh, I'm still a slave. How about you? Yeah, I'm still a slave over here too, you know. I was the armadillo bowling ball in the closet was pretty good that one time. I liked that talking to the uh, the little miniature elephant that was the vacuum cleaner. Right. Yeah, their social system was just wonderful. Um, let's see here. We've got a couple more to go for the best of sixteen. Uh, Black Hammer book. Vernon tried to get me to read for months. Um, Jeff Lemire and Dean Ormston, and it is a. You described it as what JLA JSA stuck on a alternate. It didn't suck. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. But it's more than that. I mean, it's um, Lemire's not doing. He's doing aged superheroes. He's doing magic comics. He's doing all sorts of. He, you know, the book, uh, uh, the last issue has this beautiful swamp thing homage. Like yeah. It's or or just the Adam crazy. Strange type thing that DC uh, yeah. signed one last issue. I mean, unbelievable pathos in this title. And it is. It is the most depressing comic in the world. I mean, the, I don't. What is it about all the good stuff we're reading lately? It's just depressing as shit, you know. But it's just good, you know. What I mean, I don't know. I don't know. What else are we reading that's this depressing? Well, Providence is pretty depressing. Uh, Kaiju Max is depressing. Okay, but what else new this year is that depressing? Well, I guess it wouldn't. It wouldn't be specific stories. You're right, but th- I mean, because Black Hammer isn't just like kind of depressing. Like it's just 
I don't want to spoil anything, but I mean, they just do these things where you're like, let's say you spend an issue or two with a character. And then all of a sudden at the last minute, there's this, like, you can't rely on that character. Like it's just, it's so good. And it, it took me so long to get on board because I got burnt by Lemire. Well, I'm not sure where he's heading with it, but but he's just developing these layers that he throws out every issue, mm-hmm. you know. And Lemire's yeah. always been a mini series type guy, so okay, yeah, you know, yeah. Black Hammer. You know, I didn't read that other one he did that was ran like 24 issues at Vertigo, but oh my god, the one about the horned deer boy or whatever yeah, it was. I didn't read oh, that. I, I can't believe they allowed him to publish that. I'm sorry. Anyway, so Vernon's <laughs> finally liking Jeff Lemire, and I finally yep. read Black Hammer. So it's a it, the first trade's coming out soon. You know, it's well worth it. Yeah, like I said before, it's the JLA book that doesn't suck. <laughs> and uh, let's see, here's another favorite we're going to finish off with that we we talk about every year because they manage to get a miniseries out every year. You know. Uh, Resident Alien, Man with No Name by Peter Hogan and Steve Parkhouse, which was it? This is their fourth series, I think. Yep. Now, the 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 book we swear is made for television. You know, uh, you don't have to do anything to this book; you just have to turn it into a TV. Exactly. I mean, it is. It is a British you know, mystery series. Like, what are they trying to do? Get to eight series so they can sell it as a package? I don't know. But it is just this wonderful... I mean, it's Steve Parkhouse, so... And it's Steve Parkhouse doing Americana, which is also adorable. And I think Peter Hogan's British, too, because he was an Alan Moore sort of sidekick at one point. But, uh... It's just... It's gentle, it's thoughtful, it's sweet... I mean, when else do you read a comic that doesn't give a shit about being sweet? And it's Steve Parkhouse art being sweet. It's adorable. Like, <laughs> it really is. You really love the alien guy. If you don't like the alien guy, then you're dead. Yeah, you know? I know. I mean, like, I don't think I don't think Roger Langridge could write a script for Steve Parkhouse that would make Steve Parkhouse as cute as Resident Alien. No, I don't think he could either. I mean, that's... That, that is like my favorite long draw book of the, the, you know, like you just pick up a trade of that and you got like half an hour of just easy chill, you know, you that's know, all there is to it. I mean, someday you can sit down and read the whole thing and it'll just, yeah. yeah I mean, these are just wonderfully esoteric books. They're all over the map, but they're just good. <sighs> and you know what? We're going to finish up. We're going to finish up 2016 with yet another mention of, uh, was, this, a, was this the best book of 2015 too? Mm-hmm. He might have been because well, we elevated Ed Brubaker for Fade Out in 2015. We so did. No, wait a second. Did we, we it was do that for 2015? Of, Let's see. Hold yeah, on. Yeah, there was the Alan Moore, the Brubaker, and the Garth Ennis. We voted them all like great writers of the year. I think. Yeah, it was. yeah. Hold on. Let me see here. All right. And, I'm gonna uh, look here. Twenty. Best of twenties. Because he would have started Providence in 2015. You know what I mean? Yeah, he uh, would have. And we talked about Eltingville, too. Uh, yeah. I don't think we uh, – I didn't record the order we gave it. So it's it's okay. possible. But that was a different 
That might have been a different episode from the well, again. It, it, Providence anyway. was good. Yeah, Providence. Um, yeah, it he's is, still he's still doing it. You know, like it's got one issue to go. Um, and, and I was remarked at issue eleven of the twelve about how unsettling it made you without the usual ways to do it that he'd done it previously in yeah, the series. There's nothing uh, in twelve in eleven that should be scary. On the other no. hand. Fucking terrifying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the one picture we talk about with the 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 the, the toys in the fan shop is just just eerily. It, that really unsettled me horribly. I was like, oh my gosh, you know. And it's just innocent toys sitting on a shelf, kind of. <laughs> I and he does a whole thing with music in the in the eleventh issue. I mean, it's just. Well, Providence you know, it, has always surprised us because it's Alan Moore doing a lot of work at Avatar. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're the ones that publish his vision, you know, and it's amazing because there's no editor. So it's like not only is Alan Moore a good writer, but he's a good editor of his own writing because he doesn't seem to waste any time at all or, you know, waste issues or anything like that. It's like he has an impatience with writing that if it's not good, then he doesn't want to write it or read it, you know. But, you know, here's an interesting contrast, because when we're talking about last year's list, about elevating our three writers to the, the best writers of the year. Now, but I look at what we have here with uh, Yosagi and the Spire and Haro Kanti and Kaiju Max and, and even the Flintstones and Black Hammer. We actually have a bunch of really good titles this year. So that's yeah. kind of nice. It's not just three writers in their books. It's a, it's a pretty good cross-section of comic books as they exist today. I mean, I be, as much as I appreciate the density of Providence, I also enjoy the wittiness of the Flintstones on the same level when I read the book. Right. Um, sounds strange, doesn't it? And Alan Moore and uh, Flintstones at the same level of enjoyment. Is that scary or funny? What do you think? I bet Mark Russell's read some Alan Moore. Um yeah, I mean it's just it's just a really good year for comics, in 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 the best comics of the year. Whether or right, not it's a good right. year for comics overall is you know. <laughs> <clears throat> but oh, you know, for the best, we're we're seeing a lot of great work happening this year. Yeah, exactly. A and lot it's of reassuring. Nice I mean, because you do see a lot of suckers and just crap and just. Failures. So, think about all the books we didn't talk about. Like, there, there, there aren't that many that are worthy of the time. I don't know. Like, you and I are getting to be elitist in our old age, and that's just how it goes. But we do, you know. I think, I think all the stuff we mentioned is easily accessible to anybody who reads comics. I mean, there's, oh yeah. I mean, the the one Lone Hernandez book, Blubber, that certainly doesn't take any kind of intellect to read Blubber. You don't even really read it. You just look at from one panel to the next. The words are just disgusting sound effects. That's all they are. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing you read in that book, you know. But, you know, overall, it's just a nice year of good quality work, and hopefully we'll get even more of it, and then the big two will get their shit together and start publishing more comics, you know. I mean, if they have these resources and all this money to publish comics, it seems like such a waste to have to fucking do Green Lanterns or something like that, you know, unless, unless you got something to bring to the table with Green Lantern, you know. I have no problems publishing superhero books as long as you got a writer who's got something to say, you know what I mean, because... 
it's still product at the end of the day, but a writer and an artist can put their own stamp on it if they're given the ways or the means or the environment to do so, I think. That's how we got into superheroes. I mean, geez, you know. Well, we'll leave the uh, media portion off, and we'll hit you with that on our next one since all the TV shows are on hiatus right now. Yeah. Once the shows are back, we'll we'll cover that and um, sort of sum them up, maybe. Or we'll just talk maybe, about them being maybe, back. Yeah, think, you know, yeah, like... I don't want to pigeonhole myself yet. You know, sum it up, and we'll see. If they if they deserve it, we'll do it anyway. You know, yeah. We'll see what but if you have uh, any questions, uh, please feel free to uh, contact us through the Comics Gallery Facebook page. Um, we'll put an order to the show so you don't have to take notes. You can just read it off there when uh, we get the podcast up sometime this weekend. And uh, we just enjoy your listening. And if you have any questions, don't forget to hit us with them. We'd like yeah. to answer questions. Yeah. And, you know, and here's to a happy 2017, happy my man. 2017, and there's a lot of a lot of good comics. Apparently. Yeah, well, hopefully, well, there'll be a lot of good shops that are still open to sell you those comics. So go out there and spend money at your comic book store. I'll Everybody go buy the Spire. But, you know. <laughs> everybody order a Spire. That's right. That'll, there you go, everybody. Pay. Order a Spire. That's right. If everybody orders a Spire, my check is taken care of next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. All right. Ciao, ciao. Bye.